first announcement is to plan ahead for the fall picnic, which is coming up on Saturday, October the 20th. What happens two days later? It's a test. What happens two days later? Early voting begins. Be there. All right. Today's the last day to register. I hope everyone here is registered to vote, but don't forget to vote. Okay. We hope some people will forget to vote. All right, so uh, there's a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall back here for bringing things for the Saturday picnic. Also, those who wish to help uh, can sign up. I think there's a list for different things that we may need. may need a couple of pickup trucks to haul grills out there and uh, to do the cooking and things of that nature. Also, uh, we have a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall, and I think there should be a duplicate. Is there a duplicate up here, Sandy? The sign-up sheet? for your, you know, cancellation of services for email and phone number. You know, we want people to put, is there only one in the back? Okay. Uh, it's, there's only one in the back. So if you uh, would like to receive emails that go out from West Houston Bible Church, then please uh, add your email address to that list. And that way, if there's inclement weather, if we get a freeze, if we get the odd snowstorm or hurricane, we'll be able to alert you that we are not having having Bible class. And that goes for people who are live streamers as well. Uh, you can email us if you want to be on the West Houston Bible Church uh, email distribution list, and then we can notify you as well. You never know uh, what may what may happen. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for confession. This is important for spiritual cleansing. As we'll see, especially tonight and next week, going through the worship of Israel, starting at Mount Sinai, the importance of that spiritual cleansing known as ex theologically as experiential sanctification. Because God is holy, we are to be holy. We are holy positionally by faith alone in Christ alone by trusting in him for our salvation. At that instant, we become uh, possessors of his righteousness. That is our position before God but we still sin. And so when we sin, when we confess our sin, God graciously forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and that restores us to our walk with the Lord, our walk by the Holy Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father, it's just a wonderful privilege to be able to study your word, the freedom that we have in this nation, a freedom that allows us to teach your word, proclaim the gospel, to grow spiritually, to uh, have Bibles, to own a Bible, to read our Bible freely, to study it. Father, this is a great privilege for many through the history of Christianity have 
not had that privilege and that there are many in this world today, for example, in North Korea, that the mere possession of a Bible, the mere mention of Jesus Christ can put them in danger of their life. And Father, we need to constantly remember these, our brethren, who are under such dire circumstances. And Father, we pray that it may not be so with us, that you might raise up godly men and women, people who understand the biblical principles on which this nation was founded and that will vote in the right way in this coming election and will not support the agenda of those who wish to subvert the Constitution and to oppose uh, the truth that underlies the government of this nation. And there needs to be a great change because not all is great and wonderful in this nation, for there are many who over the decades have sought to erode our foundation. So we need righteous men and women to come forward and to take a stand and to have take take roles as godly leadership and turn out those who are ungodly. And Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that we might come to understand the importance of our sanctification, and especially in terms of worship. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're back in Exodus chapter 3. We were there the last time. That was two weeks ago. And so I don't know about you, but sometimes when I have a break for a week or two, then I'm a little bit confused where I stopped and where I need to start. It's always good to review to get my head back into the train of thought that was going on. And so we're going to take a few moments to look at, the, just remind ourselves of a couple of points I was making last time, that this is talking about sanctification. This word holy is a significant word for Exodus, as we're going to see. And the Hebrew word is kadosh, which, uh, or kadosh is the verb, a kadosh be a noun, and it has that idea in various forms of, of being set apart. When it's applied to God, it picks up as secondary ideas the idea of righteousness and moral purity when you get much later into the scriptures, into the into, into, for example, Isaiah 6, where we started when we started this study. When, when Isaiah is confronted with the uh, vision of the he- heavenly throne, he screams out, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He's immediately aware, by, as he hears the seraphim chanting, Holy, 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 that he's not holy, he is a man of unclean lips. And so that brings out this this sin aspect. And so he has to be cleansed. And so we see what? the seraph, One of the uh, seraphs bringing coal, touching it to his lips, symbolic of uh, purification from sin, the need to be cleansed when we come into the presence of God. We saw the same thing when we started off last time in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses saw this bush that was burning but was not being consumed and so he turned aside to see it and there God confronted him and said Moses you are standing on holy ground and it wasn't because this ground was mystical or magical or somehow divine or any of that nonsense that people bring to this word holiness the word holy means set apart it was set apart because this was where God was appearing to Moses. That sand was chemically the same as the sand five feet away, but it was set apart because God God was there. So we have this emphasis in God's character. God is holy, and it applies to each of his attributes as we have studied. He is unique in his sovereignty, one of a kind. There is no other king over all creatures than God. God the Father is the king of creation that is different from Jesus being the messianic or Davidic king, the king for the theocratic kingdom, which is prophesied in the Old Testament. It's important to keep those two senses 
of being king separate. He is uniquely righteous and just. He's unique in his love. He's unique in his eternality. Somebody brought this question up to me. Eternal life means that God has no beginning and no end. Time does not apply to God. When we look at his other attributes, what we see is the application of infinity to his attributes. He is infinitely love. He is infinitely powerful. He has infinite knowledge. He has infinite power. And that is different from eternality. So so keep those concepts a little separate. So when God shows up to Moses, he says, and the point of this whole episode is to say, I will be with you. We've seen that again and again. God said that to Jacob. When, we were, when Jacob was at Bethel, he makes his promise, I will be with you. It is used by God many, many times in the Old Testament when he appears to Israel, I will be with you. When Jesus gives the Great Commission to the disciples, he said, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so this is significant for us. So this is where that promise has its origin back in Genesis and here in Exodus. But he's calling out these people. Now, as a nation, this is the established, this episode here and the following chapters up through 19 is calling out the nation, whereas they have been a unique people, a descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now they're being called out as a nation. What's their purpose that we see here in 312? You shall serve God on this mountain. And that is going to be, of course, Mount Sinai. Then in verse 13, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And we talked about this last time, and I brought out new material, so I wanted to review it again because if you're like me, you forget what you just taught, okay, or what you just learned. We all need to hear things and read things five or six different times before it really catches, especially when we've heard the wrong thing. And often what we hear is when God identifies the meaning of his name as it's translated here in the New King James and also in the New America or in the NET Bible, in the second example, I am who I am as a present tense. He says, I am who I am. And often that is used to emphasize that God has eternal existence or he is the self-existent one. And this, of course, was was very prominent in the Middle Ages when uh, Christian thinkers, the scholastics, the those who lived in the monasteries and were the readers who preserved education and preserved the scriptures as they were studying, they understood the importance of reason and developing the discipline of the mind. And it was out of those church schools that became cathedral schools that we had the development of universities. No Muslim started a university. No Buddhist started a university. Hindus did not start universities. Universities are uniquely the product of Christianity and the impact of the understanding that God is a rational God, which I talked about Sunday morning, on the thinking of these, they were called schoolmen, like... uh, uh, Boethius, like um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, all of these uh, medieval thinkers that made wrote commentaries on Plato, on Aristotle, developing their mind, they, they all understood this to be existential, and so it became a foundation for their understanding of the eternal existence of man And so some of the things they said was right, some of the things they said was not right. But we know from a look at the text that that is not really what is going on here, although that's what I was taught, that's what you've been taught uh, for for many, many years. But it was brought out, I told you last time, as I was pursuing um, a study on this, I got a new commentary on Exodus, which had about 10 pages on this, and developed it very, very well, written by a a Jewish 
I think, it, it, I think an Israeli scholar, uh, Jewish, and also backed up in a paper that was published in Dallas Seminary's Theological Journal, Bibliotheca Sacra, which came out in the, um, his article came out around 1985. And so, God is giving a new sense of the meaning of his name, as I pointed out. I went to Exodus 6, 2, and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Elyon, God Almighty. But to but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now, he's not saying they didn't know the name Yahweh. But understanding its meaning, as he's identifying it now, it wasn't understood. They understood him in terms of his power, El Elyon, the mighty God. But they didn't understand him in terms of uh, what he's saying now. And what we're going to see is that when he says, my name means, he says, Yehyeh which in Hebrew is the first person, and he, he's basically saying, I am, but there's something about this that has a future sense to it, and what he is saying is, I'm here now to, to act, to intervene in history, and fulfill the promises I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I didn't appear to them as the one who was interceding and acting in fulfillment of these promises. That is what I'm doing I'm doing now. And it's very clear that from at least the end of Genesis 4, where it says that men began to call on the name of the Lord, to, uh, for, for uh, Seth's son, Seth is uh, the replacement son for Cain, to Adam and Eve. Uh, his son is Enosh. But they, were, they knew God as Yahweh even before that. In Genesis 12, 8, at the beginning of Abraham's career, when he is in Haran, he was calling on the name of Yahweh. So he knew the name. He just didn't know the theological significance of it as it's being revealed to the Jews in Exodus chapter 3. At Genesis twenty-two fourteen, after God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, there's a ram that is caught in the bushes, and uh, Abraham was about to slit Isaac's throat. God provided a substitute sacrifice, and so Abraham comes up with a new name for God, Yahweh, indicating he knows that name. Yahweh Yireh, we usually call it Jehovah Jireh in sort of our English bastardization of the language, but it means the Lord will provide. So he knew the name, but again, he doesn't know this, uh, this significance. So one scholar has named Matyer has paraphrased six, uh, Exodus 6, 2, and 3, as, as you see at the bottom of the slide. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I showed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in the character of El Shaddai. But in the character expressed by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So it has to do with expressing something new related to the implications of that name. So I went on, and here's a quote where Yehyeh is in the Cal imperfect. You don't need to know all the grammar, but it literally means to be, and it's in the first person singular. Yahweh is in the third person. It's he is. So when we say Yahweh, that means he is. In other words, he is the one who intervenes. He is the one who acts. He is the one who fulfills uh, his promises. And I pointed out that, that what this is emphasizing is that God is sovereignly independent of his creation and that his presence guarantees the fulfillment of the covenant, the fulfillment of those promises he made to Abraham that after approximately 400 years, he would be, uh, the people would come back to the land. His descendants would come back to the land. So this uh, 
this contradicts the ontological meaning, I am or I am the existent one, and yet it has a future tense. It's not just, it's not a present tense, I am, but it's a future tense. I will be or I will act. And so that's what God is claiming. Tell them it is I will act. I will fulfill that promise. And contextually, he's sending Moses to uh, to de- to deliver them. So this is the message that Moses is sent with to them. And he goes to them. He's told to gather the elders of Israel together and to tell them that the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to him and will bring them up out of the affliction. So the context is all about God delivering Israel. So that's the significance of his name. Now, we're going to move forward, and we go to about where I stopped last time in Exodus chapter 5, and this brings up the major confrontation uh, that occurs with with Pharaoh. We're told in uh, Exodus 5.1, after Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So, now he is going to reveal something new about himself to his people. We have seen in Genesis 22:14, which I quoted earlier, that God is the provider. God provides a substitute. We have seen and we will see in this Exodus event that God is revealed as the deliverer the Redeemer. Israel is in slavery to Egypt, and God is going to redeem them from slavery. This becomes a perfect picture of the redemption that Jesus Christ is going to provide for us in paying the price to free us from our slavery to sin. And so there's a, but there's a third implication to uh, to when when the name Yahweh is used, he's a Yahweh Yahweh Yireh, the provider, Yahweh now the deliverer, the redeemer of Israel, and the third is it's associated with the covenant that God makes with Israel, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with with Moses, the covenant with uh, the land covenant, the covenant with David, and eventually the new covenant. So. This is when he begins to move to deliver the people. And Moses goes to the Pharaoh. Now, remember, Pharaoh is the uh, incarnation of the Egypt, one of the Egyptian deities. Therefore, he is a divine person, and he owns. Remember at the end of the, of the story with Joseph that when they, they, they go through the famine, Remember, uh, Joseph has the vision, and it talks about the fat years and then the lean years. And the fat years reflected to the time they'd have prosperity for seven years, followed by seven years of famine. And we're told that toward the end of that seven years of famine, that people were having to come to the government for handouts because during all that time of plenty, uh, Joseph had been stockpiling grain and now they're running out of their own stockpiles of grain, and they're having to come to the government. And then when they ran out of that, uh, of any way to buy the grain, the government said, well, we'll buy your land too. And so the government now, in the person of Pharaoh, owned all the land and all the means of production in Egypt so that every Egyptian was virtually a slave to the Pharaoh. And so the slaves of his people, the slaves of the slaves, as it were, were clearly belonged to Pharaoh and were his. And so these impertinent Jews are coming to him and saying they have another God who says they are his people. And this is the height of effrontery to the Egyptian Pharaoh because they're his people's slaves and he owns his people and therefore he owns his slaves and they 
are want to go into the wilderness to have a feast to me, not to the Pharaoh, but to this God who is uh, calling them to come out and worship. And it's interesting, the word that is used here for holding a feast, the noun for feast is hag. That I have that down at the bottom, hag, and it means a feast. Its Arab equ- Arabic equivalent is hajj. When a, uh, a Muslim reaches a certain age, sometime in his life he needs to make the hajj and go to Mecca. And once he has made the hajj, then he gets to prefix his name with that title hajj. That's why the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem during the 20s and the 30s, who's one of the most evil men that ever lived, hated the Jews. In fact, during World War II, he spent most of the war in Berlin and with Adolf Hitler and gave a lot of guidance to Hitler, gave him a lot of ideas for how he could torture and murder the Jews. And his name was Amin al-Husseini from the al-Husseini clan. And But he's usually known because he has the title Hajj Amin al-Husseini. Hajj means he's made a Hajj to Mecca. Anybody here know who his nephew was? A couple of people. Who's his nephew, Jack? Arafat. Yeah, Arafat was his nephew. Husseini was so evil that Arafat changed his name to, uh, I think it was his his mother's family, because uh, to disguise the fact that he was really the heir to uh, uh, al-Husseini. But that is part of the evil of anti-Semitism. But that's, that's the word, hajj. It means to go somewhere to celebrate and to have a feast. And so God says, uh, let my people go that they may have a hold a feast, Hagag, uh, to me in the wilderness. They're going to go celebrate. Now, this celebration isn't a big party like we might think of a birthday party. This is a more somber, more sober celebration of God. That is part of what worship is. It is to celebrate our salvation. So there's something related to joy and uh, excitement because we know that we're saved. But it's also a time of of uh, sober thinking, of reflection, a time of seriousness to reflect upon who God is and why he has called us uh, into his plan and why uh, he has given us so much. And so they are going to go worship God in uh, in the wilderness. And Pharaoh doesn't like this, and he basically, in great derision, he's like, who is Yahweh? Nobody ever heard of that God, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. These are my slaves. They're not his slaves. I don't know him, nor will I let Israel go. Just the height of arrogance, and of course, we know what's going to happen eventually. And so... Moses and Aaron answered and said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to Yahweh our God, Yahweh Eloheinu, lest he fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. And then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. So he absolutely, totally refuses uh, to do that. And so that triggers a series of events. And I'm not going to get into all those events. We know what they are. They're the ten plagues. And they begin with the water turning into blood at the very beginning with the first plague. And it ends with the last plague, which is the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the solution, the redemption solution to that plague is the Passover, Pesach. The Passover. And what's significant about that for us is this lays the foundation for all of Israel's worship, all the other festivals and everything else, because the Passover is the picture of their redemption. It is the picture of God's provision of a substitute sacrifice so that Passover itself stands as a picture of justification. 
the price for sin is paid, and that redemption takes takes place on the 14th of Nisan. Nisan roughly covers our March, April. It's the first month on their um, on, on their ceremonial calendar, and so that's when it occurs. And on the 10th of that month, I've got a slide up here. Uh, on verse 3 in Exodus chapter 12 Moses is told to speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father and a lamb for a household now this is important because it's on the 10th of the month when Jesus enters into Jerusalem Guess which day of the month it is, right before his crucifixion? It's on the 10th of the month. See, on the 10th, the Passover lamb would be selected, and the Passover lamb would be evaluated to make sure no bones are broken, no scars, no spot, no blemish. And it's taken into the house. Now, later on, what we're going to see is that, that this would be identified as the firstborn of the flock. The year before, and so at that time, something happens that's that's distinctive. If you've ever been around sheep or cattle, you know that if when the springtime comes, if you have large flocks or herds, there's a lot of babies. So you have to spot the firstborn, and in order to make sure you don't lose the firstborn, you have to do something special to isolate that firstborn. And so you're going to bring that firstborn in. You're going to keep it near the house. You're probably going to name it. It's going to be part of the family. And this lamb that lives with you for a month, who hasn't done, I mean, for a year, hasn't done anything wrong, and that has basically lived with the family, is now the lamb that you are going to take at Passover and you're going to take that lamb to the temple or the tabernacle, and you are going to slit its throat as you put your sins on that lamb. And that really brings a point home because you've lived with this lamb for a year, and now there is an emotional bond with that lamb. I don't think they had an emotional lamb like we do today because we've all been uh, psychologically affected by Bambi and other uh, Disney stories so that we personify our animals too much. But that's what they would, that's what would happen. And so the, Jesus fulfills that type by coming into, coming into Jerusalem on the 10th, and then he's evaluated in all of those confrontations with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and and the elders. The qualifications from the Lamb are then uh, set forth starting in verse 5. Now, one of the things that, that we need to understand here is that with this introduction of the Passover, which I'll get into more and more, especially when we get to talking about worship and the Lord's table, is that there's a couple of things that are going on as part of this foundational meal, this first Seder meal. That's the correct term to refer to a Passover meal. There are three key things that are going on here, or four, actually. I'm not going to talk about the bitter herbs because that's a reminder, but there's three central things that are happening here. The first is the bread. And there's this point made that you're not going to leaven the bread. Now, in that first circumstance, the first situation, they didn't leaven the bread because this was going to happen so quickly they didn't have time to let the bread rise uh, a couple of times, so they left it unleavened. Now, the significance of that is going to come come up later. The bread was unleavened. The second thing that that is present here is the body of the sacrifice. The body of the sacrifice is the lamb that is going to be eaten. That's important too. But what's been separated from the lamb is the third element, and that's the blood. The blood is drained from the sacrifice, and then the blood is applied to the door. 
So you have these three elements, the bread, the body, and the blood. Now, body and the blood together represent a sacrifice, okay? That's the imagery. This is the sacrifice. You have the body and you have the blood together. The body is eaten and the blood is applied. Now, I want you to think about that a minute. When we come to the Lord's table this coming Sunday, and I'll point this out again, is that when Jesus is taking the bread, what does he identify it as? This is my body. Okay, so we have the unleavened bread and we have the body. And then he will come much later in the meal to the third cup, and he says, this is my blood. So see, we've got these three elements right there in the Seder meal that the disciples are eating with Jesus when he is going to change the meaning of these particular elements. But the point I want you to remember is when Jesus talks about the blood and the body, what what are they hearing as a Jew in a sacrificial system? They're hearing that he's identifying himself as a sacrifice. That's That's the symbology of what he is saying when he says my body and this is this is my blood the blood represents the death of the animal and that death was necessary for the redemption of the people but that because god was going to take the life of the firstborn in every family but in god's grace he gave a substitute And so that lamb that is killed, whose blood is applied to the doorpost, is the substitute. So that's part of the imagery here that underlies all of Passover, which is the central feast for Israel. It speaks of their redemption. And it occurs on the 14th of Nisan. The next day is the 15th. What begins on the 15th is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, by the time Jesus is along, there are many people who just, oh, it's all one holiday. The first day is Passover. The second day is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it just sort of all gets jumbled together now as one long holiday. But that loses the doctrinal point here. And the teaching point here is justification is on the 14th. And it is separated from a process. It's a one-day event, one-day situation where a person believes and is saved. That's justification. But what happens the next day is talking about sanctification and the spiritual life. And that's pictured by the next seven days they don't eat unleavened bread. And leaven represents sin. So it's representing the fact that the redeemed person is supposed to live a life that is sanctified and set apart uh, set apart to the Lord. And so you have these passages like Exodus uh, 12, 21, Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said, pick out and take your lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. In verse 13 uh, Exodus thirteen thirteen. but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of man among your sins you shall redeem. It extends beyond the firstborn son to the firstborn of the flocks. So it's followed by seven days. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there will be a feast to the Lord. Now, I think that the seven days represents a, li- a sanctified life symbolically, and it ends with a feast, a celebration. When we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, what happens to the church age believer? There's a wedding feast just before Jesus returns to the earth. And I think this foreshadows that in the order, the order of, e- of events. Now, Paul picks this up. I'm not just drawing these, uh, this symbolism out of thin air. He talks to the Corinthians about this, and he talks to them in such a way as he expects them to have already been taught about the Passover 
and the Passover meal. This is why I think it's important, and I think I'm going to do it again next spring. I haven't done it in a while. It's for us to go through a Seder meal every now and then. Everything that happened, this would go on. I mean, this was a big celebration. If you're in a Jewish household and you go to a Seder, uh, you're going to bring all the kids, all the grandkids, and it is going to be a big family celebration like Christmas. It's a fun time. It is suggested that this idea that we picked up from the movies and, and uh, Renaissance art that it's just Jesus and the boys is not accurate to a Jewish Passover, that that upper room was probably quite large. How do we know that? Because they met in the same room sometime around 40 days later, and there were 120 there. So if you've got... 12 disciples, and you've got Jesus, you've got 13, and Jesus wouldn't even think about having Passover without his mother there. That would be absurd. That just wouldn't happen. This is everybody doing a normal Passover. So it's very possible, highly likely, that when they're in this upper room, Jesus takes the guys aside and has a little time with them But this whole evening would have lasted three or four hours. We just hit the high points where he's talking about the the cup and the, I mean, the bread and the cup. We're not getting the whole uh, event where they act out and they read and they go through the whole narrative of of Exodus and everybody uh, reenacts what happened in the deliverance of God. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus takes these little points out. So it's not a five minute meeting. It lasted well into the night and past past midnight. In fact, we know from rabbinical writings that they would have to come up with a lot of games and activities because it would last close to midnight, and they'd have to figure out ways to entertain the kids and keep them alert and involved because they're staying up way past uh, past their bedtime. And so this fits with this scenario. It doesn't fit, of course, with Da Vinci's, and I've seen a couple other with uh, paintings on the on the Last Supper. Dead giveaway that they don't know what two things they don't know what they're doing. Number one, if you look through the windows, it's a blue sky. When evening came, they were celebrating the Passover. You have to wait till sundown before you can have the Passover. Number two is they're sitting in European chairs instead of reclining at couches because it's the position of somebody who's free and is no longer a slave. Just a couple of extra things to think about. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus is, excuse me, Paul is challenging the Corinthians because they've been minimizing sin in the congregation. In fact, they've almost been glorifying it. And this is a situation where they had a man who was committing incest with his mother-in-law, and uh, it was really his stepmother, I think, and so it offended even the pagans. Now, that's not such a big offense necessarily in our culture, but it was a big offense in the Corinthian culture, so much so that everybody in town knew about it, and they were really embarrassed by what these Christians were doing. And it was bringing a lot of shame to the cross. So Paul is having to correct them and say, you need to deal with this. And so in the middle of that, he says, your glorying is not good. They were proud of their, we're so gracious. We're so good. God forgives all of our sins. We even have this gross sinner here in our midst and everything's okay. They were acting licentiously. And so Jesus says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What's the imagery there? The imagery goes right back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can't have any leaven. Therefore, purge out or clean out. It's it's a form of the word for cleansing that we have in 1 John 1, 9. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. See, he's, he's applying this whole imagery of of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a picture of this, the life of the believer who is sanctified, who is living apart from sin. And so he says, um, 
you are truly are unleavened. That's positional truth. Their position in Christ is there now have his righteousness, but experientially you need to cleanse out the old leaven. For indeed, then he says what? Look at that. Christ, our Passover. They already understand this. This isn't new to them. He's identifying, again, remember, Christ is our Passover. He's that, and literally the word that's used here is a term used to refer to the lamb. Christ is the Passover lamb. And he's making that application. He was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. What feast is he talking about? Now, they see a lot of people come along and say, well, this is the love feast. This is the related to observing the Lord's table because they would eat in the early church. They would have meals and then end with the Lord's table. He's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's saying, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. So he's moving from the type to the application. So we have to be cleansed from sin, malice, wickedness, and the unleavened bread of of sincerity, and replace it with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so we learned something about worship there, that to worship a holy God, we have to be holy. Now, we can't make ourselves holy. Holiness comes through cleansing. Cleansing comes first at the cross when we trust in Christ as Savior. That is when we become truly unleavened. That is when we are positionally identified with Christ and we are positionally cleansed of all sin and given the righteousness of Christ. And second, when we sin experientially, we confess sin and we are forgiven of those sins and then cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, the next thing to point out in Exodus is related to worship It's something that happens for the first time in Scripture. I don't think it's the first time this happened, but it's the first time that God's going to talk about it in the Scripture, and that's in Exodus chapter 15. After the deliverance, after the deliverance from Israel when they crossed the Red Sea, that's the picture of their Passover and the Red Sea is a picture of their redemption They come out on the other side, and that's when they're going to be given the law. The law wasn't given before the nation was redeemed and saved. That's salvation. You have to keep salvation and sanctification separate. This is the problem with so-called lordship salvation, otherwise known as perseverance Calvinism, is the idea that if you're a true believer, you will not commit certain sins. They merge justification with sanctification. It's a problem with Roman Catholic theology. In biblical theology, biblical truth, justification takes place in a point in time. Sanctification's a process. But in Roman Catholic theology, you have to keep crucifying Jesus every week in the Mass because salvation's a process just like sanctification. You never know when the process is complete because Jesus has to be re-crucified every week and he's still on the cross. That's the difference. If you go to a Catholic church, you will notice that they have Jesus on the cross. He never gets down. Their emphasis is on the death, and that's what gets celebrated in the Mass. Protestants don't wear a crucifix with Jesus on the cross they just wear a cross. It's an empty, empty cross. It's interesting that in Eastern Orthodox churches, their emphasis is on the resurrection on Sunday. So that's, uh, that's a really diff- interesting contrast between Western Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. But in Exodus 15, after they've crossed the Red Sea, they have a celebration and they sing for joy. First time singing is mentioned. Exodus 15.1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, I think that when we get here, 
that that last part of that verse becomes a chorus that gets repeated uh, antiphonally as an echo by the women. Now, where in the world did you get that? Well, first, in order of event, you have the Song of Moses. And we ought to read that. We're not going to do that tonight, but read it and think about how it tells the story poetically, the structure, how it is organized. This is a pattern for music. This is the first time singing hymns to God is presented as forms of worship. And now you have a congregation, an assembly, and they are corporately worshiping God. This hasn't happened before. And so he he writes this, and you have great verses here. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so this is a praise him to God, declaring what he has done. Then you get to the end. Now, it's all describing the same event. You get to the end, and in verse 20, we read, Then Miriam... This is Moses' sister, Miriam, and here she's identified as a prophetess. The sister of Aaron took the timbrel in her hand, so she's got a tambourine, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them. See, that's antiphonal. They would sing one, the men would sing one verse and the women would echo with this chorus. You have something like this in um, in one of the Psalms, it escapes me right now, where every other line is has to do with the faithfulness, the loyal love of God toward Israel. And it's echoed, it's antiphonal. So that's what's going on here. Miriam is leading the women in an antiphonal response. See, we're going to do this Sunday morning when we read our um, responsive reading. We will read from Isaiah 53, the 12 verses in Isaiah 53, and I'll have the men read one verse and then the ladies read the next verse. And that's another way uh, to do that. And so this is what is happening here in, in this section. Now, when it talks about Miriam the prophetess, We have other women mentioned as prophetesses in the Old Testament. We have in Judges 4.4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. So Deborah's a judge, but she's also identified as, as a prophetess. And there's a couple of other prophetesses. And so we ask the question, well, what in world, I didn't get these verses in here, What in the world is this referencing? Well, we think of a prophet as someone who foretells the future, and that's wrong. A prophet was a spokesperson for God. Most of the time, the prophet is bringing an indictment like an attorney general against the nation because they violated the covenant. It's not a pleasant message. Read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve. They're constantly presenting these lawsuits against the nation. That's the role of a prophet. In the course of presenting the lawsuit, they're saying, this is what God's going to do. He's going to kick you out of the land, but then he's going to bring you back under these circumstances. So that's when the future part comes in. But it is indicting the people for their violation of their covenant. But prophet has another meaning. In First Chronicles 25.1, using the same Hebrew word, we read, As David is developing the worship that will be part of the temple, he says, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service, that is, the service of the Lord in the tabernacle, some of the sons of Asaph. He wrote some of the Psalms in the uh, psalm book. Asaph of Heman and of Jeduthun, who would prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. Remember when we studied Saul, and Saul falls in among the prophets, and and he says he prophesied with the prophets, and everybody scratches their head and says, what in the world's going on here? Well, the only thing that makes sense is that they're singing praises to God. 
And that's what's going. You have Miriam of prophetess. What's she doing? She's singing. You have Deborah mentioned. Deborah chapter 4 is a prophetess and a judge. What does she do in chapter 5? She sings a hymn to God in gratitude for the victory that God gave them over Sisera uh, and Jabin the Canaanites. So this is the best way, I believe, to, to explain this. So this is a new addition to worship, which is the corporate singing. Notice we've had sacrifice, we've had cleansing, and we've had confession. We've had proclamation calling on the name of the Lord, and it's a long time before we get to singing. Now, singing is important, but today we live in a world where in too many churches, almost every church outside of just a smattering, have fallen into very sloppy thinking, and they refer to the song leader as the worship leader, and they refer to singing as worship. When the highest form of worship is that time we take to study God's word and to learn God's word, to think about God's word, that's worship. The worship leader is the pastor. The worship leader is the one who teaches the word of God. The worship leader is not the song leader. That is not what we are singing here. And as a matter of fact, when we look at these passage, uh, we don't see uh, statements being, well, that Moses and the children of Israel sang this worship song to the Lord or worshiped by singing this song to the Lord. We don't find that kind of language. They are worshiping, but that's not the restriction. We live in a world today where we want the church to be like the outside. So when people, here's the rationale, so that when unbelieving pagans whose souls are filled with darkness, who are corrupt and spiritually dead, so that when they come into the congregation, they can feel comfortable. Now I ask you, do you think that a, an unbeliever, spiritually dead, a pagan idol, idol worshiper, would feel comfortable walking into the temple of God in the Old Testament? Not at all. It's not about being, believers didn't feel comfortable walking into the presence of God. It's a wrong value system. It's not what the scripture puts its emphasis. Now, what I want to do now is I want to turn our attention, how much time do we have left? I want to turn our attention to chapter 19. Skip over three chapters. And we're going to spend a little time looking at chapter 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. Chapter 19 prepares the nation. Now, remember, they're already redeemed as a nation. That's the picture. They are a redeemed people. Now they have to be spiritually prepared to receive the covenant. They have to be spiritually prepared to worship God. Chapters 20 to 23 is the reception of the revelation of God in the covenant. And this is the Mosaic covenant in the law. Chapter 20 is the preface to the law. That's the Ten Commandments. Where were the first Ten Commandments in the Bible? Anybody remember? Genesis chapter 1. There are Ten Commands of God in the creation narrative. So that's the first Ten Commandments. This is the second Ten Commandments. And then we have 21 to 23 goes into a lot of detail and case law as part of the law. And then in chapter 24, Israel is going to affirm the covenant with God and Moses is going to go up onto the mountain. And that is it's not a worship service per se, but it has a lot of things in common uh, with, with worship. Now, when we get to Exodus chapter 19, we read in verse 1, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so if they go out in Nisan, which is roughly, let's just call it uh, April 1st, so this is now summer. Three months later, where are they? Sinai. Cool, balmy, on the beach. 
No, it's pretty hot and dry desert down there. So just, just keep that in mind. So they are in the wilderness of Sinai. And this is why water is always an issue as they go through the land. And so Moses, in verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from a mountain and says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. Now, why are they going to listen to Moses? Because in this episode, they're going to hear the voice of God. They don't just hear a rumble in the mountains. They just don't hear it in between their ears, some kind of uh, mystical vision. It's an objective reality. They hear God speaks to them, and it shakes them to the core of their existence. If they had had a little MP3 recorder with them, they could have recorded the sound of God. If they had had their iPhone with them, they could have had a nice little videotape They could have told all of us what this appearance looked like. It was an objective reality. See, when you get into Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. He is saying these are the commands that God gave you, and they know they are because they heard the voice of God and that he went up onto the mountains. They had seen the plagues. They had witnessed the splitting of the Red Sea and God's deliverance and other miracles along the way, including uh, God's provision of water and God's provision of food. And so in Exodus 19.4, God goes on and says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. And if we think about it historically, all All throughout the ancient world, they heard what God did to the Egyptians. It wiped out Egyptian civilization. We don't hear about Egypt uh, getting involved in the Middle East for about four or 500 years in Scripture. It's not until you get into the time of of, of David, really, that the Egyptians become a, a force again. They're devastated by what happens in the plague. So this is 1440, and the time of David is about 1,000. So it's 400 to 500 years before they're a player again. They are wiped out. Uh, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. For uh, a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. God is staking out his, his zone of authority. All the earth is mine. I am the sovereign ruler of creation. I created everything, the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. And therefore, I can do what I want. And of all the peoples of the earth, I have chosen you through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be Mine, And what for? What is the purpose? Earlier we saw the purpose was to go into the wilderness to serve God. And how are they going to serve him? They're identified in verse 6, key verse in the Old Testament. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now let's work backward. They are a nation. What kind? Holy. Does that mean they're pure? Does that mean they're sinless? Does that mean they're perfect? No. It means they are set apart to the service of God. That's why they are holy. So we, we just have all kinds of garbage associated with the word holy, and that's not what it means. They're set apart to the service of God. How are they going to serve God? As a kingdom of priests. So that means that Israel as a nation is going to be a priest nation that does for all the Gentile nations what the tribe of Levi is going to do for Israel. He's called the nation of Israel to be his servants as a kingdom of priests, but they couldn't be a kingdom of priests unless they were a holy nation. 
That's why God tells him later on, you be holy for I am holy. You be set apart to me because I am unique and distinct above all the gods. So they have to be a holy nation. And he's called out the priests, the Levites, and established qualifications for them so that they would be holy and a distinct tribe within the tribes of Israel. So what we see here is the significance of being set apart to God. This is they, The salvation is pictured in redemption and their uh, spiritual life and their spiritual growth, their service to God is what is being pictured here. They have to learn to be a holy nation. And so we're going to come back next time and we're going to get into that and start talking about these next uh, two or three chapters. And then we're going to go into the distinctive uh, worship and service of God as we look at the, at the tabernacle and what's going on in the service of God in the tabernacle. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to be reminded that, that we are involved in no less a distinctive aspect of worship in the church age. We have a higher role than Israel, for we are the bride and the body of Christ. And we are called to serve you, and we are called also to be holy, for you are holy. That doesn't mean that we walk around thinking we're more righteous than everybody else, or we're better than everybody else, but that we are to serve you and serve others and love others as Christ has loved us. We are to uh, be that picture. We are to grow in our sanctification, learning to live more and more for you. Challenge us with this as we continue in Christ's name. Amen.